John, thank you so much for joining us and uh, being willing to talk to us about um, what is evidently an immensely complicated and serious situation in Ukraine. Tell us, can you start off by telling us a little bit about your background, um, especially as it's relevant to, uh, to the conflict now? Sure. I've been um, thinking about and studying Russia and Russian foreign policy for well, more than 10 years now. I uh, was interested in, I thought maybe I'd be interested in a career in energy. And so learning Russian was going to be uh, a good avenue to working in Central Asia. And uh, I was at Georgetown, which had a wonderful Russian department, and I sort of caught the bug and studied the language, studied the culture. And then I ended up uh, studying in St. Petersburg for a summer and then actually working in Embassy Moscow in the economic section there. Um, and that, that really opened my eyes uh, to, it was, it was there at a very pivotal moment. Uh, most Americans probably won't remember this, but in, in fall 2011, when I was there, there was this, uh, it was sort of the height of US-Russia relations since the Cold War. And when I, when I first arrived, my first job was to help translate the, the agreed on uh, accession document for Russia to enter the World Trade Organization, which it did in that fall. And then when I left, I actually attended the first mass protests uh, against Putin, uh, which were held in December of 2011 in Bologna Square. Uh, so it was there at a very pivotal moment. And then I went on to, to graduate school uh, at Oxford, where I worked in Russian foreign policy, for, did my master's and my, my PhD. And my, my area of specialization is uh, US and Russian foreign and defense policy, especially around military innovation. So how do militaries what, what, what allows the military to successfully develop and deploy advanced technology? Which is all to say that you're, the, I think, the per perfect person to, to be speaking to right now. So uh, we're, we're definitely privileged uh, to have your time and, and your insight here. So given all of that, given how carefully I'm sure you've been watching the situation unfold, what, what would it be important for us to know right now? Uh, what has caught your eye in, the, in these early days, but even maybe you can go back and, uh, you know, I'm sure we can trace the thread back uh, quite a long time, but how would you set up what's happening right now for somebody who's trying to get their bearings and, and may, may be uncertain about um, the causes of the present situation uh, and, and why it's played out the way it's played out? Yeah, and this is something I, I've been paying attention to for a long time. It featured um, prominently in my, my master's work at Oxford. The, the, the essence of the problem is that from the Russian point of view, uh, well, and I would say from the Ukrainian point of view, just with the different emotional valence, Ukraine has been sort of slipping away from Russia, uh, really since 1991, but accelerating uh, after around 2004. And the causes of this are, are many, but the, the, it really boils down to the fact that Russia doesn't have a lot to offer Ukraine relative to the European Union and relative to the West. And I think you know, Americans have a sort of um, an American-centric viewpoint, and there's been a lot of discussion of NATO and with Russia's increasing uh, belligerence, even before this, obviously NATO was more important. But for I think for most Ukrainians, the EU is more important and the economic and cultural opportunities offered by close relationship with Europe. Um, and Russia pursued a, a policy of trying to get Ukraine back into its orbit with increasing um, uh, extremity beginning in the 2000s uh, with efforts to basically subvert uh, Ukraine, pro-Western, pro-European forces in Ukrainian politics and install uh, or support pro-Russian forces. Uh, and this led to a color revolution in 2014 that uh, overthrew the pro-Russian, you know, triggered by, one notes, um, a, an agreement with the European Union that was, was going to be made. Uh, uh, essentially, the pro-Russian leader Yanukovych backed out of that agreement at the last minute in favor of a pro-Russian uh, agreement. Uh, and there was a lot of money involved, and I'm sure plenty of corruption. This led to a, uh, a revolution in which Yanukovych was overthrown. And in the aftermath of that revolution, which was supported very overtly by the West, including by the United States, uh, Russia invaded Crimea, uh, which was a, a sort of a peninsula in the Black Sea that has been Russian territory uh, principally since like the 18th, 17th century or 18th century. Um, and then began a, an insurgency in Eastern Ukraine. And that was sort of the status quo ante for 2014 until uh, you know, a few weeks ago. And 
you know, my, my take on the situation is that Putin believes that he needed to solve the Ukraine question. In other words, the problem of Ukraine slipping out of Russia's orbit, the problem of the, the unrecognized uh, status of these areas of eastern Ukraine and Crimea, uh, Crimea now part of Russia, uh, by the Russian understanding. Uh, and he wanted to do so before he left office. Uh, I think he believed that it was at least likely there would be a secession crisis uh, after his death or retirement, um, or that at least that it was possible. And he wanted to solve this as part of his legacy to Russia. He views himself in sort of historical terms. Uh, and that with a, a relatively weak government in the United States, you know, a lot of division in the United States, a lot of division in Great Britain, uh, with Biden in the U.S., with Boris Johnson in Great Britain, a new and untested chancellor in Germany. There, there were just a lot of factors mm -hmm. pointing to sort of um, distraction uh, in the West. Oh, and also, by the way, uh, some people have noted this, um, probably the high point of European energy dependence on Russia is over the next several years mm -hmm. as Germany uh, takes its large nuclear reactors uh, offline and before they're replaced by alternative energy in a meaningful way. So there are a lot of factors that were sort of pointing Putin towards uh, solving this here and now. The problem, and this is what we're encountering now, is that the uh, the means chosen didn't match the goals. The goals were always quite expansive, right. uh, but the Russian uh, Russian military essentially was not up to the task. Uh, it's it's much stronger than the Ukrainian military, but not strong enough to achieve the kind of fiat accompli which Putin hoped. Uh, you know, he hoped the government would fall within. 72 or 96 hours and that, that the fact that this has already happened would sort of help uh forfend the worst of sanctions would help forfend an insurgency uh and or prolonged fighting and pretty much everything about the plan um was was made with that timeline in, in mind uh and so now we're in a very bad kind of worst case scenario with with russia with it yeah right that, and that's very helpful and and uh, so one one question I would have is um, how does Ukraine understand its relation to Russian Russian culture? Um, you know, again, I think for a lot of Americans, uh, you know, especially in that region um, and you know Southwest Asia, there there's it's just a little bit maybe of a, of a vacuum of cultural knowledge. How would you describe the the relation between the you know Ukrainian people, Russian culture, um, similarities of language? Because I think some, to some degree, this seems that part of the surprise has maybe also been in some quarters the degree to which uh, Ukrainians have rallied around their independence and their their distinctiveness as, as a people. Is, is that fair to say? Yeah, no, certainly Putin was surprised by that. Yeah. Um, right. So the, the, the truth is that there's, always, there's a great story, which I think goes to the heart of this. Um, the, the Russian, well, is he Russian? The Ukrainian-Russian author, Nikolai Gogol, um, wrote a, a short story in which at one point one of his characters is speaking in, in a kind of Ukrainian dialect. And apparently he was at a, a dinner party in, in Russia, Russia, presumably in St. Petersburg or Moscow. And one of the members, uh, you know, one of the attendees said how much they enjoyed the story, but how he made a number of grammatical mistakes in a section. He proceeded to sort of correct the mistakes and Google listened quite grimly and said, oh, thank you very much. I'll, I'll see to it that it's fixed for the next printing. And that sort of the kind of the closeness and yet the kind of chauvinism is, I think that's that's the Ukrainian-Russian relationship in a nutshell. So there, there is a, a huge degree of closeness, um, historical, cultural, linguistic, et cetera. But the, the, the Russian position for a very long time has been that Ukraine is, is at best a kind of little brother nation and at worst not really a separate nation um and ukrainian nationalism before now was always um the the, the number of sort of hardcore nationalists who viewed ukraine as an entirely separate nation maybe in contradistinction to russia was i think the, a very much a minority element although present but there is a certain degree of of resentment maybe isn't the right word but the ukrainians feel more independent of the Russians than the Russians feel the Ukrainians. This is a pattern that goes back, as I said, at least 200 years. Okay. Um, and, but it's been really deepened. I think, I think the source of Ukrainian nationalism are in some ways much more recent, which is that for the last eight years, um, you know, Russia has been waging war against the Ukrainian state. 
Uh, there are very many Ukrainians, including in parts of the country like Kharkiv, which are Russian speaking, um, you know, in many cases populated by uh, people who uh, are, you know, part Russian, part Ukrainian in their, in their extended family. Um, but they've been, you know, they've been fighting a war for the last eight years. And for most Ukrainians, the, or very many Ukrainians anyways, the Ukrainian state that emerged after the Euromaidan revolution was a legitimate democratic state. Um, and so um, there's a certain amount of resistance to, you know, one of the great wellsprings of nationalism is kind of wars of liberation and national resistance. And so by, you know, in a pattern that's not, wouldn't be a, a unusual for someone to study 19th century history, it's precisely the kind of attempt to keep Ukraine by force that has been the biggest thing fostering Ukrainian nationalism. Hmm. That, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, so, so things having fallen apart in the way that they did from the Russian perspective, from Putin's perspective anyway, um, what, what, are, what, what paths do you see as maybe the most likely paths that will be, be unfolding from here on out? Uh, of course, you know, knowing that predicting such things is, um, uh, you know, a dangerous business. Well, I mean, th this is really the, the, the question. And I think we're, we're actually renting a very dangerous part of the crisis. Um, in some ways, it would have been easier. It's easy to predict what things would have looked like if you if, if Ukraine had fallen quickly, like mm -hmm. Putin hoped. But it hasn't worked out that way. And so the problem now is that Russia was really not on serious war footing um, uh, at the time. Right? There was, you know, for those of us who study these things, one of the great kind of mysteries in, in the early weeks of February, um, when, you know, those who were paying attention to the military situation could see quite clearly what Russia intended to do. One of the great mysteries that remained was uh, the lack of mobilization and the lack of uh, public mobilization, I should say. You know, the, there wasn't a lot on state TV about it. There just there wasn't it wasn't what you'd expect if, if Putin anticipated a major war. It wasn't until a few days before the the invasion that there was even a significant uptick in sort of in content on Russian TV or Russian state media about you know crimes about you know Ukrainian genocide of Russians and. Donetsk and Luhansk or um, any indication or the kind of cries for help or terrorist activities in Donetsk and Luhansk, uh, any, any of the things that were used to justify the invasion. Um, and what we now realize is that that was simply because um, Putin knew that, that the effort would be unpopular. Um, mm -hmm. Precisely, so the part of the problem for Putin, the great deal of the problem is that precisely that sense of, of closeness between Russians and Ukrainians, again, felt especially from the Russian side, is now a huge hindrance to mobilizing the Russian war effort, right? Ukrainians, you know, look like Russians. They, most Ukrainians can speak fluent Russian. They're a huge percentage of Ukrainian, the Russians have family um, who are Ukrainian or, or live in Ukraine or have lived in Ukraine. Um, you can't simply, so the, the Putin, the, the war plan was designed to, to to for it to all be over before anyone really noticed, right? For it's going to be a special. It wasn't a war. It was a special military operation. It was going to target the, the government quite cleanly. Um, it was not going to have a lot of civilian casualties in contradistinction to most Russian war efforts in the last thirty years. Um, and so the problem is that Putin can't just simply turn on the, the standard Russian way of war because of the, the domestic political consequences. And so it, it presents a, a, a political crisis within Russia, the kind that Putin has never faced before. One, uh, one of the things that very obviously makes this um, a dangerous situation, there's, there's been a, a lot of chatter about um, nuclear weapons and the threat of the use of nuclear weapons. Um, it, you know, it seemed to me that uh, Putin has signaled uh, that in some respects, or, you know, uh, saber rattled in that, in that way. One of the things that I wanted to make sure you know, we talked about is um, this work on, on Russian nuclear orthodoxy, uh, with, with a pun, I take it on the word orthodoxy here. I think you know, a lot of times we may you know, kind of import what we might think of or have, have learned at some point about uh, you know, the, the American uh, way of thinking about uh, or wargaming uh, nuclear scenarios and mutual assured destruction is maybe the, you know, the term that's most associated with this. But the, the idea that maybe the Russians don't think quite the same way, right? This is, 
what I found really fascinating, then that this has more recently a, a religious dimension to it. Can, can you talk to us a little bit about this thesis and, and, and how you weigh it and, and what you take from it? Yeah, that's right. So in the, during the Cold War, um, a scholar and, and military analyst named Jack Snyder realized that American military doctrine and military planning around nuclear weapons uh, was built on mirror imaging. It, it specifically, it presumed that the Soviet side of this case had the same understanding of what nuclear weapons were, the same sense of their effects, the same norms even around, you know, th that it would, for example, be breaking a kind of taboos and dropping a nuclear weapon. Um, and what he, what, he, what he demonstrated is that that wasn't the case, that the Soviets had their own, um, not, he didn't focus on, he didn't relate to Marxist ideology, but just their own internal discourse of, around nuclear weapons with different assumptions. Um, and he, he labeled this a the strategic culture. This is this term, if you've heard this before, the strategic culture refers to originally this debate about mm -hmm. to what extent do we have to take into mind how the Soviet Union understands its nuclear weapons as we anticipate what they're going to do. Well, Dima Adamski, who's a, uh, a scholar of Russian, uh, the Russian military, some renowned, had written this very interesting book where he chronicles the close relationship that emerged after uh, the fall of the Soviet Union between the Russian Orthodox Church and the Russian strategic nuclear forces. Um, and the book is, is, is very detailed. And he argued this was both a bottom-up and a top-down effort. Um, essentially what happened is with the fall of the Soviet Union, uh, nuclear weapons became more important than ever to Russia, right? Russia is, is the world's largest country. Um, it's, it's always struggled with the, the porosity of its borders, right? The, Russia's been invaded you know, many, many times throughout its history. And nuclear weapons provided were, were a, a new kind of strategic defense against invasion, a uh, new force protecting Russia. Um, but the Russian military in you know, 1991 was, was very poorly paid and had extremely low morale. Um, and what the Russian Orthodox Church argued to, uh, well, to, to the leaders of the nuclear forces was that it could, it could provide a kind of raison d'etre to for Russian soldiers actually working in the nuclear forces, right? And this is where it really was a kind of bottom-up thing of, you know, you're not just sitting in a silo for hours on end, bored out of your mind, being paid pennies. You are actually the defender of sacred Russia and of the Russian Orthodox Church. And therefore of, you know, you know orthodoxy literally means like true belief, mm -hmm. true faith in, in, uh, in, in Russian and in Greek. Um, and that, that essential notion has really flourished. Um, the, the cult of Saint, the Saint Seraphim of Serov uh, has, uh, has become a, sort of established as the patron saint of Russia's nuclear forces by a sort of happenstance. Saint Seraphim, who's, who's, uh, was a, uh, he's a saint who wrote explicitly about the role of the Holy Spirit in Orthodoxy and particularly the role of the Holy Spirit in protecting Russia. He lived in, in a, a skettle, in a skettle, sorry, a uh, skeet, uh, sort of a monastic cell in Serov, which is, as it happens, uh, where the Russian nuclear forces are headquartered. And so there's this, you know, this has sort of become intertwined. Um, there are Russian military chaplains uh, embedded throughout the Russian uh, forces, including on nuclear submarines. Um, and they've actually, it was interesting, one of the things Adamski points out is that these chaplains literally one for one took the place of the Soviet uh, commissars. So the, the, so the communist party had, had commissars embedded in these units mm -hmm. to ensure their loyalty to the party. In 1991, the commissars are out and in their place in the sort of staffing chart are chaplains. So almost perfect substitution. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, in addition to a, a real authentic bottom-up development, uh, there's also a top-down dimension to this, uh, which is that um, for the Russian state, having a kind of a religious um, role for the nuclear forces is a great guarantor of, of uh, morale, um, as well as something that justifies, you know, building and maintaining a strong nuclear force. Again, the, 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 the phrasing is that, uh, you know, as the Holy Spirit and the Orthodox Church protect uh, Russia's 
spiritually that the nuclear forces protect Russia physically. Um, and then from the Orthodox Church standpoint, this is obviously a great source of kind of pride and prestige. To the point actually where, you know, Orthodox theologians and priests outside of this have raised the question of whether it's appropriate that there's this degree of closeness. So actually a few years ago, uh, the Orthodox Church, the Russian Orthodox Church uh, decreed that um, it put limits on what priests could bless. Hmm. So before then, you know, priests were blessing not only barracks and, you know, uh, and uh, vehicles or, you know, uh, I don't know, command centers, but also the actual missiles and warheads themselves. So they've been forbidden from actually blessing the nuclear warheads, hmm. but they can still bless other other aspects of the, the nuclear forces. And that, that's a, a remarkable transition from what was for generations a you know, essentially atheistic regime to suddenly flip on uh, the religious dimension. Um, so how does this change the uh, the strategic thinking? How, how does being aware of this dimension of strategic culture in Russia impact the way that maybe Western leaders, military leaders might, might kind of run their calculus about nuclear confrontation or nuclear strategy? Yeah, well, that's a great, I mean, that, that's sort of the question that Adamski asks in the book. Um, I mean, it isn't, it isn't a straightforward one-to-one thing mm-hmm. and the Russians are still, you know, rational, relatively, you know, rational actors. You know, nobody's trying to, to uh, lead to nuclear war, but I mean, so for example, in, in, a, in his speech announcing this special multi-operation, President Putin said that uh, any foreign interveners would meet, you know, consequences of the kind they never faced before, mm-hmm. right? Right. If you combine that with the sense, you know, which Putin argued in, in an essay published last uh, summer and which was required reading throughout the Russian military, although if you know anything about militaries, that will tell you how much people actually probably read it. Um, but it was a, an essay entitled on the historical unity of the Ukrainian and Russian peoples, hmm. right? So if Putin believes that Ukraine and Russia are spiritually one people, if he believes, as he does, that the Ukrainian autocephalous church ought not to exist, that it's actually ought to be part of the Russian Moscow Patriarchate, then it suggests that he's he's not bluffing. He actually is quite serious. He's extremely serious about the the civilizational and spiritual need to re- return U- Ukraine to Russia. It's not merely uh, an assessment. Now, I do think that, that security plays a big role in this. I, I don't want to underestimate the role of uh, Russian concerns about NATO enlargement in all this. But, you know, it's difficult for Americans who are used to viewing international relations through the lens of things that are far away from us. It's difficult to appreciate how, as it were, close to home this is as far as the Russian regime is concerned. Mm-hmm. And, and difficulty uh, viewing things or considering things far away from us, um, but then maybe also uh, maybe a, a challenging to, to think about these real, you know, religious traditions that are also to some degree foreign for many Americans uh, impacting and having such a, um, a role, almost a kind of uh, sacralizing role in, um, in something that, in our context, often is presented as uh, you know very technocratic and calculating dimension of, of foreign policy. Yes, that's that's exactly right. And you know, um, without without leaning too diff- too much on what could become a sort of stereotype, but it is worth pointing out that um, in contradistinction to the Western Church, the Russian Orthodox Church maintains a very strong uh, practice of sort of ascetics and the spiritual utility of suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, I think many Westerners, especially when it comes to things like sanctions, uh, particularly sanctions of sort of, of Putin himself or the Russian elite, they think that sort of, you know, restricting the sybaritic pleasures of these leaders will, uh, might restrain the behavior. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's, that's just an American projection of a way of thinking onto, onto people who have a very different mindset. Right. The other interesting dimension uh, of the conflict thus far, and, and I, yeah, and I don't, I don't mean to um, you know, suggest this is just sort of a, an interesting experiment unfolding that we can kind of exercise our, our thinking on, but one important dimension of it is, is the role that digital media has played thus far. I've seen claims that you know this is sort of the, the, the first 
time that a, a, a conflict has received the kind of uh, instantaneous coverage uh, that we're seeing. You know, I, I think you just need to be on Twitter for five minutes uh, before your your feed gets flooded by um, all, all manner of, of video images and clips and photographs. Um, the 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 kind of role that Zelensky has played in this, I, I think, very early on, maybe it was after the first day of the invasion, it suddenly came to my mind. This he's an actor. Um, this is what he has done, and and, and there was this. Uh, I, you know, as I try to, you know, figure out, is is this a, in some sense, a continuation of his, his role? Has it prepared him for it? You know, what are the kind of levels of mediation that are involved here? Uh, and then to be aware of the fact that we are in a, in a not, you know, especially as observers and not people who are on the ground, as it were, in a, in a kind of information, uh, in a zone of informational conflict as well. What what have been the things that have that have caught your attention in this realm? Uh, with regards to the way that the media becomes an important dimension of uh, of how we understand the war, how how the U Ukraine wants to project the situation, uh, and then Russia has had this sort of vaunted uh, reputation of of being expert informational warriors, um, which maybe has not played out the way some have expected. Uh, what's your your read of this this part of the conflict? Yeah, um, well, it's funny you, you said the media, but I think actually we're we're beyond the media. And mm -hmm. as you know, as you might know, Richard Nixon invented the term the media to criticize uh, the coverage of the Vietnam War, which was dominated by the media, by news media, uh, principally news media, you know, magazines, newspapers, television. Um, but the way we're experiencing the war right now has only marginally to do with, you know, the media is only one amongst any number of potential players. Right. And the really the media is dominated by, you know, our experience of it is dominated by the medium, which is the Internet. Everyone, mm -hmm. almost everyone is experiencing this war at the speed of the Internet. Right. And just as, you know, watching, you know, watching the Gulf War, reading about the Gulf War in the newspaper would have paled in comparison to watching it live on CNN. Um, you know, watching it seems like wait, waiting to watch it on CNN is interminably slow compared to yes. getting it sort of live on Twitter. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, it's, it's really remarkable. And then you have the, the layers, the, the layers of the information environment. As you mentioned, you know, Zelensky is a, uh, an actor who played a president on TV and in, or in a movie and parlayed that to running for president and became the president and is now portraying the president on, you know, for numerous audiences, Ukrainian and, and Russian and Western. Um, it, it's all really remarkable and all sort of blends together. and. It has a very kind of Baudrillardian yeah. sense of a kind of it's difficult to tell, you know, where the the, the um, uh, you know, it seems like, you know, is this a precedent or is it a simulation of a precedent? <laughs> it's yeah, impossible right. to tell. It's become impossible to say. And that that in yeah. itself is exactly what Baudrillard predicted. Right. Um, it is funny. The, I sort of had suspected for years. And so. In a, in a previous work by Adamski, uh, who wrote Russian Nuclear Orthodoxy, he wrote about Russian mil about innovation, military innovation. He pointed out something which is true, pattern going back at least to the 1920s, where um, the Russians, you know, the Soviets, now the Russians, uh, have repeatedly shown themselves to be some of the most innovative thinkers and theorists of new military doctrines, completely unable to put them into practice. <laughs> And Adamski says that uh, essentially, um, you know, where where the Russians theorize and, and fail to put into practice, the Americans steal from the Russians and are actually put into practice. I think this is true of information operations. The Russians have a very sophisticated theory of information operations, but I've never seen very much evidence that they're able to to really conduct it in a serious way. And one suspects that you know, while they they conduct have conducted misinformation and and via media outlets like Russian Today or, and various sort of fake news and propaganda efforts, social media, um, and, a, and a certain degree of, of, of hacking. And that might be the most successful effort, right? hacking and releasing, uh, you know, the John Podesta emails at just the right time. Mm -hmm. But it's a pretty narrow toolkit. And they actually don't have a lot of um, uh, voice into American society. And they're not really amplified by actual mainstream press in the West at all, uh, at least not. And there, there are many other foreign countries that are much more successful at that. 
Um, and so I think what we're seeing now, and you can, you can see that now in this, this operation, you know, the, the pro-Russia voices have been completely non-existent and drowned out. Um, and actually, in some extent, the kind of, because of the, 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 as I said earlier, the lack of mobilization, some of these pro-Russia um, tools are actually falling apart. Like Russia today has basically lost all its staff. They've all resigned. Um, uh, and instead, the Ukrainians have been extraordinarily effective at using social media to reach Western audiences. But it's also amplified right, by the fact that they're the, um, they're the, you know, they're the good guy in this scenario. And they are, you know, the Russians invaded Ukraine. Mm-hmm. But going back to at least, going back to at least the 90s, Western media have tended to kind of, in any conflict, identify the good guys and the bad guys, and then build all media on that basis. Um, and so that's also benefiting the, the Ukrainians. My sense is when you experience, um, you know, any uh, significant event online, that you're, you're flooded by all manner of, of, of data points um, that precede the formation of a kind of coherent narrative. You know, I was thinking back to the Gulf War, and, and I think part of the difference is, is that, you know, even, there's a, even though there was this new form of immediacy and, and so much of the footage, I was you know, trying to recall, you know, the, a lot of the footage was often um, the, the perspective of the smart bomb, uh, you know, the, the smart bomb landing on the building but it was still, it felt, you know, controlled. Uh, we, we were receiving these as press briefings from military officers um, or administration officials. Um, by contrast, this seems much more uh, chaotic. And, and I've been struck by, I was struck early on by the emergence almost simultaneously of, of these sort of mythic storylines um, that, you know, upon uh, closer examination may or may not, um, you know, bear out uh, whether it was the, uh, the ghost of Kiev, um, you know, guarding the skies of the city, uh, the particular way in which the uh, soldiers of, uh, on Snake Island were, uh, their fate was framed. How do you make this? Because in some respects, it kind of runs, um, runs counter to what I'm, I might have expected, but maybe it is because we were so preloaded, pre- predetermined to read the Ukrainians as the uh, the good actors in the conflict that that there was a almost a desire kind of to, to believe any story that that pretended to their uh, to their good, but there's still something about the the kind of mythic storytelling that so quickly took shape uh, and and how adept Ukraine was at promoting, going along with, encouraging uh, these these particular storylines. Yeah, well, in, in, a, in one of your newsletters. Michael, you, you made a very good distinction between sort of the narrative and the database. Mm-hmm. And this transition from a world in which a small number of, where the media, a small number of, of organizations in a many to one to many media environment create narratives mm-hmm. and spread narratives. And the kind of political contestation is about which of those narratives, you know, about building or attacking the narrative. Um, and in a world of kind of fragmented media environment where facts are uh, super abundant and where we can search quite easily to find facts. And in fact, actually, you don't even have to search now, right? We have algorithm, algorithmically generated feeds that bring us the, the, the content that we most like, e.g. that supports the narratives we like. We've exited the world of the big end narrative, and now we have small end narratives fed by this database. Um, and I think that's what you're seeing on Twitter, right, is that, is that we take discrete bits of content and we rapidly build them in real time into interpretations or narratives, which we then support with further content. Um, and to the extent that any one element, uh, any one factoid um, fails, uh, you know, we can kind of route around it. You know, what was that old line that, um, you know, the internet perceives censorship as damage? Well, there might be a version here where like the narrative perceives fact-checking as damage and routes around it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> where, right. um, you know, any particular fact yeah. check just makes the smallest dent in, in the actual underlying narrative, which takes on a life of its own. Um, the other thing I would say is um, in a world of again, one to many to one to many media, you know, as you mentioned, the kind of uh, the calm CNN showing the military briefing led by a uniform military officer showing you uh, smart bomb footage, um, the role of, of state actors and shaping the information environment is kind of overt, mm-hmm. but that, that hasn't gone away. You know, many of these narratives 
that, that take on life of their own quickly are built by uh, state actors, intelligence agencies, uh, diplomatic services, uh, even militaries that run information warfare, information operations units. That's their job is to build these narratives. Um, and they're quite good at doing it. Um, and so the, the issue that that creates then is I think, you know, one has to kind of adopt a kind of hermeneutics of suspicion because the information environment is always already infiltrated by these kinds of actors. Um, and so I think we are only really beginning to contend with what it means as citizens in a democracy to live in an information environment that is constantly being sh covertly shaped that way. Yeah, and that makes that makes a lot of sense. Uh, and interestingly, it leads you know to compulsive attempt to to keep up with what is happening, right? Because the, the feed is endless, uh, and you know mm -hmm. through, you know th through uh, hour upon hour, one you know can very easily kind of be be um, compelled to uh, you know I recently said a line to to stand sentinel over. Um, our feeds uh, out, of, out of a desire to make sense, to understand, um, and, or maybe even just the, the compulsion of the spectacle. Um, so the, yeah, the idea that we're, we're figuring out what it means to, how to properly attend to some, some event like this where the, the information sources are just so overwhelming um, and not just the, the question of sorting uh, the, the, the true from from the the contested, uh, which I think maybe is a a less interesting question than just sort of grappling with the the effect the effect of sheer information. But but the social media feeds, the the uh, the images, the videos, um, this is this is one element of the larger digital media environment or or uh, picture. There you you alluded when we began um, you know talking before before. Um, launch into the interview uh, to the role of some newer, not necessarily newer, but technologies that have more recently come to public attention. Um, decentralized technologies, uh, Web3. What role do you see this conflict playing in, in that trajectory of the larger sort of history and, and, and development of the internet? Yeah, I think, you know, what's interesting is in, in many conflicts, what you see, you know, th thinking as a sort of military historian for a second, it may come, what you see in many conflicts is a technology or, or set of technologies that is sort of come to fruition and is showing its full power in the conflict. Mm -hmm. But then you often equally see another set of technologies which exerts maybe a marginal influence on the conflict, but is sort of born out of that conflict and mm -hmm. takes on greater and greater preeminence over time. Um, so, for example, in the Second World War, you might say that the, um, you know, the the power of sort of the airplane and you know conventional um, uh, conventional industrial warfare is sort of at its at its height, in this, as well as technologies like uh, communications technologies like the radio uh, and the newspaper. But then you also see a set of digital technologies, uh, computing for encryption, radio technologies for communications, which are really born out of that war. And which, um, you, you know, in retrospect, you can see that they're born in that conflict. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that we're sort of at, I think what we're experiencing in light of social media is sort of social media at its fullest form uh, and the influence that it can exert on a conflict. And I think that will only grow over mm -hmm. the course of the conflict. But I also think that in the background, what we might see, this is highly speculative, is um, the impetus for, um, for decentralized computing coming out of, especially out of the shocking power of the economic weapon in this war. Um, you know, I've studied sanctions, or I, I, you know, at least Russian sanctions, and many, many other people pay attention. Even people who, who pay attention to sanctions have been shocked at how wide and effective and deep the sanction regime has gone and how quickly it's done so. I mean, especially things like freezing central bank reserves, mm -hmm. extraordinary, um, uh, extraordinary. There's no other word than a weapon that yeah. you know instantly. I mean, it basically caused an instant financial crisis in Russia. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a you know a weapon of instantaneous effect of the kind of, of instantaneous strategic effect of the kind which previously only nuclear weapons were capable of. Mm -hmm. So, 
the what, what will come out of that, one of the things that might come out of that are technologies which cannot be centrally controlled or administered in the same way. Um, and, you know, certainly folks who are concerned about, uh, you know, I thought it was really interesting that the head of the SVR, the foreign uh, intelligence, Russian foreign intelligence, made a comment about Russia being sort of canceled, to use that word canceled yes, yes, by so. the, the West. And, you know, for this, this conflict is only going to a throw fuel in the fire for those in the West who are concerned about similarly deep and rapid uses like we saw in Canada with against the sort of trucker protest of mm-hmm. instantly locking them out of the entire financial system uh, in a state of emergency. Mm-hmm. Um, but also, you know, maybe more importantly, in the thing that things like Bitcoin and decentralized computing have lacked is actually a state actor who is incentivized. And Ru- Russia will basically need to rebuild its financial system if these sanctions aren't let up. And one suspects that one tool they might use to do that is decentralized uh, or some forms of decentralized computing, if only to, to solve the, um, the trust problem, right? So any, any counterparty that Russia wants to transact with, you know, wouldn't trust or would basically have to be paid to trust a Russian government controlled uh, system. And so one way for Russia to be able to transact more readily with, with partners who don't trust the Russian government is to actually itself build an inv- or invest in decentralized tools. Um, so that, that, it's difficult to say what the ramifications of this will be, but that's an area where I think we're going to see a lot of, we're going to view this conflict as a pivotal moment. And yeah, so that, that's, that's helpful, helpful thing to keep an eye on. Um, John, do you have any, any closing thoughts, anything I haven't asked about that you think is important and worth, worth mentioning uh, as, as we wrap up our, our time together? Uh, well, not in particular. I guess the only other thing I might, might say is that one thing we haven't, that hasn't yet clear is the influence that social media is going to have, not just on mobilizing Western publics, but uh, on influencing Western politics. You know, so far there's been a lot of, a lot more chatter on social media about no-fly zones mm-hmm. or other escalatory effects than there has been in actually the halls of power, as it were. But, you know, uh, one thing that I think the COVID-19 pandemic revealed is that policymakers are people too, and they can be just as sort of online or affected by internet discourse as anybody else can. And of course, they deal with publics that are shaped, increasingly shaped right. by this. Um, and it, it reminds me a little bit of, of Paul Virilio's The Information Bomb, which mm-hmm. you, you recently talked about. So maybe, maybe you could talk about uh, the way that this in- information bomb has, has gone off in this conflict. Yeah, that, uh, that was a notion I began thinking about yesterday. I, I mean, and I think the thought that pre- preceded it, uh, which is, was, of course, fanciful, is that uh, uh, thinking along the lines you suggested, right, that there, there is this increasing pressure, uh, calls for a no-fly zone, almost a cavalier disregard of, in some quarters, of the possibility of, of nuclear escalation. And uh, the, the thought occurred is that maybe nobody with political power or aspiring to political power should be allowed on on social media. Uh, you know, obviously entirely impractical, um, but it it does raise that specter of 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 gaining you know people in power gaining a perspective on the world that maybe is too heavily influenced influenced by by the demands uh, the temporal demands of uh, of social media. The, the line, the information bomb. Uh, I, I I can't remember if it it appears first of all in. Uh, uh, a short, it's actually an interview uh, that's published as a, as a small book, uh, The Administration of Fear. Um, and, and that line had caught my, my, my attention and kind of re- recalled it as I was, um, you know, thinking about the conflict, thinking about the way fear becomes an environment. And, and the, the administration of fear, you know, has this kind of double entendre, you know, on the one hand, uh, you know, to administer something uh, suggests, uh, give, you know, giving a dose of something to someone, right, to administer a medicine, say. Uh, and administration also suggests management, right? That you try to manage something, administer um, some some phenomena, uh, and the the way in which the whole world, right, suddenly is is attuned to very specific moment uh, and these developments that are happening, uh, and 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 you know, Virilio also added this idea that you know we we can be emotionally um, uh, tuned, right, in a certain way, right, that there's a all of a sudden, there's uh, a way to kind of calibrate uh, the the emotional responses of of people across the the globe, uh, and that you know that 
can result in fear. Um, it could be used to generate support, et cetera, has you know, many potential functions, but, but the instantaneity of it uh, and, the, and the global reach of it. it so it's, it, it almost parallels, right? The, the, the way you were describing the sanctions that are dropped on Russia, having kind of this instantaneous uh, economic, economic ramifications. Uh, and that, you know, the information bomb suddenly dropped upon our consciousness through social media has, you know, likewise sort of immediate uh, population-wide consequences. Um, so, yeah, I, I confess that that's a, what, what fully to make of that uh, and how to, um, to think about it, uh, you know, whether we are, the degree to which a, a, an actor can take control of that um, environment uh, in order to to administer fear or to suggest the way that fear needs to be administrated, um, you know, in either senses of those terms, uh, seems like a very important question moving forward. And, and even sort of reading that um, that uh, analysis back through the the months of the and, and year, you know, two years of the pandemic, uh, seems like it might be a useful exercise. Uh, but that that suddenly we're we're all. Uh, tied to these events in a very profound and, and constant way, which, which will be, I think, you know, certainly consequential and, and which, you know, as you suggested, um, it's hard to imagine uh, people in power being able to either ignore that or, or it having no particular effect as it, to the degree that it shapes public sentiment and, and what the public deems as, um, you know, right actions. Yeah, it's been a while since I read uh, the, the, the book, but, if I recall correctly, he also talks in another section about, you know, he's famous for his dromology, his mm -hmm. theory of speed. Mm -hmm. And he, he always a, a nice clarifying remark in the book, which is that it's related. He, what he says that he wants to do is provide a kind of theory of relativity for philosophy. That mm -hmm. the same way that Einstein had revolutionized yeah. physics, that he wants to revolutionize philosophy, which had heretofore neglected the role of sort of time, space, and speed in, right. in shaping human life. And then one thing he says is that in the same way that according to Einsteinian relativity, you know, as you approach the speed of light and instantaneity, a lot of very weird things begin to happen. A lot of weird, you know, you, the connection between time and space, in other words, you know, different spaces take time to move across and that, you know, which is to say you move at a different speed. Um, you know, to move at speed is to cross a space in a set of time. Mm -hmm. Well, when you approach instantaneity, um, weird relationships begin to form, weird things become plausible. You know, you, you reach effectively a kind of singularity. And to me that what that suggests is that as we reach a point where in human consciousness where things happen instantly, where emotion happens instantly, where, you know, it, you, know you, you have this, you might take the entire kind of, kind of an Arendtian or Habermasian notion of a kind of public space you have to ask yourself what happens when this public space is compressed to nothing by by speed. You know where where suddenly what moves across it moves across it instantly. Um, really raises I think more questions than answers of what that but what about what that means. But I think it is remarkable, right, that we're at a point where a decision is made in Washington and ATMs turn off in in Russia. You know, you want to talk about what globalization means. I mean, globalization as a theory referred primarily to the way that people were kind of connected across space through through communications. But now we're a step beyond that. It was kind of it's almost a version of kind of spooky political action at a distance. Mm -hmm. Right. The fact that you could, you know, uh, someone could cause a financial crisis or a, a, a political crisis or an emotional crisis across the world instantly. Right. That's a kind of, I mean, to me, that you know, that's what the information bomb is, and that's what's so yeah. weird and dangerous to think about. Right. Um, yeah, that 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 I that idea that you can kind of cal is it's already, I think, in in, in McLuhan, right? This idea that you know the you, he hypothesizes that you can kind of play with the media in such a way as to uh, you know turn up certain uh, perceptive capacities or, or certain emotional states and or, or turn it down. And it almost comes off as, as rather fanciful, I think, when he's writing it um, in the 60s and 70s. Uh, but but to see the way in which you know whole whole populations uh, are uh, you know raised to a fever pitch, uh, in, instant instantly, as you suggested, right? And 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 what that means for politics that traditionally has required 
or assumed different temporal states. Uh, and, and you're right to say, I mean, I, these are just questions, right? As far you know, as I can, I can tell right now, I, I have no answers for what, what this will mean in the long run. Um, but it's, um, it strikes me as a, you know, a, a pretty, at least a pretty unstable place or, you know, a potentially um, dangerous place, if for no other reason that we don't know how, how to sort of act in it. And, you know, maybe, um, maybe some do, but, but it seems like there's, this is, uh, um, you know, we're, we're a new kind of media geopolitical waters uh, in some respects. I'm reading um, Ian Toll's uh, three-volume history of the Pacific War right now with some friends, and someone pointed out you know, one of the most remarkable things about it is that after, um, uh, I believe it's Admiral Nimitz is given command uh, in the Pacific, he uh, not only needs to, but insists upon taking the train from Washington to, I think, San Diego or Los Angeles, where he'll fly to Hawaii. They'd offered to fly, and he insisted on, on, uh, on taking the train. And it gave him four or five days to sit and think about the task ahead of him. Mm-hmm. And now, I mean, since, you know, since the 1950s, we've had at least the, the theoretical problem of a nuclear confrontation as, as uh forbidding the possibility of contemplation in a mm-hmm. sense. Right. But now it seems like so many other kinds of statecraft also militate against contemplation, militate against kind of a slow and prudential response. Yeah. And to my mind that that creates a very dangerous situation. Right. Right. Uh, I, I remember I think Virilio uh, I think he he frames his work as a as a you know an explication of what Arendt called, uh, you know, totalitarianism being uh, you know, government that that is reduced to the laws of motion, uh, and then he he goes on to, um, you know, as you say, focus on speed and and the dimension of speed in these conflicts. But right, the 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 loss of that, what what only in you know in that in that you know I'm a, I'm a child of the '80s, right? So caught the, the tail end of the world uh, of the Cold War, and that specter of uh, someone having moments to decide, less than moments to decide. Uh, you know that one famous account um, of the, the Russian military officer who sees an early warning sign of, of an American uh, nuclear assault, but you know has the presence of mind to to think twice about it. Uh, but that there's that risk that the instantaneity requires action, but that that now isn't just limited to the nuclear conflict, but uh, it, it it has spread across. Um, all dimensions of, of warfare and cultural life. That's right. And that's, that's the challenge that we're trying to all figure out and figure out in different cultural contexts at the same time. Right. Right. Well, John, thank you very much uh, for your time. These have been, I think, you know, really illuminating observations. Um, and um, we, we still obviously face um, quite a bit of uncertainty moving forward, but, but I think you've helped us uh, put, you know, shed some light on the situation developments, um, both historically and, and um, uh, you know, even philosophically. So thank you. I appreciate that. And uh, best, best wishes to you. Thank you so much for having me, Michael.